You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. For decades, milk has been fueling women marathon runners as the OG performance drink. And in the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers takes us on a journey of self-discovery as she meets several groups of empowered women runners to find out what drives them, what fuels them, and what pushes them to go the distance. And in the process, she learns that she too can be a distance runner. You can watch the series at runningsuckstheseries.com and register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hey, uh, before we get going, I just want to say that this show is brought to you by Park Row Books, the publisher of Under My Skin by New York Times best-selling author Lisa Unger. Under My Skin is an addictive psychological thriller about a woman on the hunt for her husband's killer. But can she handle the truth about what really happened? Find out for yourself. Listen to the audiobook of Under My Skin today. Also bringing you the show today, it's the new contemporary dance and art show, Sleeping Beauty Dreams, coming to New York City this holiday season. Uh, I am excited about this. I don't go see many shows, but hey, the Christmas season is the season to see Sleeping Beauty Dreams. It's at the Beacon Theater on December 14th and 15th. You can get tickets at ticketmaster.com slash sleeping beauty dreams again sleeping beauty dreams in nyc this holiday season here's the show hey welcome to the long form podcast i'm aaron lammer i'm here with evan ratliff hey aaron max linsky's uh, paternity leave continues uh, we continue to try to be adults without the father figure in our lives. It's a miracle if this uh, this show will even come out. But we we keep trying. All yeah. we can do is try. What about uh, a guest? You did interview a guest. I did interview a guest. Uh, I talked to Lisa Brennan Jobs, um, who yes is Steve Jobs' daughter and has a memoir out about that topic. Yeah, um, it's I'm called Small Fry. Um, the book is really different than what you might expect and I think perhaps like what her publisher and the marketing machine might expect. Um, it's a really intense and deep uh, memoir about like flawed families and flawed people and um, it was uh, it was a book I was eager to read in a salacious way and ended up finding the book to be very different than I expected and I actually was much more interesting than I expected. I really enjoyed it. Ah, yeah, it's gotten a, attention for a certain aspect, but there's a lot more to it. Yeah, um, and uh, she was really game to talk about it like at length. I think she was maybe eager to talk about it as a writer rather than um, someone trying to get a pull quote out of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, thanks to her for being so open about, um, you know, this is not easy stuff to talk about. Uh, Evan, sponsors this week? Yeah, there is a sponsor this week, Aaron. I'm throwing it right at you because I, mm. I don't think I've ever heard you uh, ha- promo. No, you haven't. Yeah. 
I also want to say welcome back, Evan. Thank you. Um, I was back last week. But you were back oh. last week, but uh, I uh, I missed you. I missed you. I missed I missed your episodes. Uh, I very much enjoyed uh, the Liana Fink episode you did last time. And even if no one in our audience noticed that you took nine months off hosting the show, I noticed, and I appreciate you. I wasn't hurt. I wasn't hurt that no one noticed. Aaron, if you if you noticed something and you wanted to tell people about it, how would you do that? Well, I, I think I would do it with a MailChimp newsletter, and I actually think that your nine-month hiatus is a good model for how uh, people are involved in big projects. They come and go on the Internet, and sometimes you don't know when they have something out or when they disappear for nine months. Why are they disappeared? Well, they were writing a book, and when they come out with that book, it's great to receive an email newsletter about it. So I encourage everyone to start a MailChimp newsletter today so people can follow you your whole life. Uh, and what you're up to until email no longer exists. <laughs> Thank you, MailChimp. <laughs> Please exist forever. Yeah, yeah. And now here's Aaron with Lisa Brennan Jobs. So I had to become an introvert to write this book. I'm not an introvert. I had to basically cover my head go into a tent, go into a cave to write this book. Stop sending acquaintances birthday presents. Stop remembering their birthdays. Remember that I cared about them, but basically stop contacting them because otherwise I could not write this book. And so now I'm like a, you know, like a coal miner blinking in the light. Um, um, welcome, Lisa Brandon you. Jobs, uh, <laughs> former extrovert, current introvert. You've been broken by your own book. <laughs> Okay, let's talk about who you were before you wrote this book. Like, what were you doing with your life before you ruined it by writing this book? I was consulting at, or consulting, I mean, that's an odd thing to say. I didn't have a steady job, but they paid me <laughs> um, to work at a design company, at this design company in New York called 2 by 4 Okay. And um, before that, I'd been working at a design company in London called Pentagram. Yes, Pentagram, uh, designer of... Uh, the Beatles logo work. I'm trying. What is the oh, most? Oh, I wonder famous? if they did that. They I did know they've lot, done. Maybe. They've done a lot of like really famous logos. So they might have designed the Beatles logo, but that wasn't the guy that I was working with. I was working with a very talented man, Daniel Weil, and my dad actually helped me get that job, which is another embarrassing fact among many that I will share with you today. So what what was your so, writing? Experience? So then I was consulting at Two by Four, and I was finishing my MFA at Bennington, which was a non residential program. Oh, interesting. Which I started in London and then finished in New York. And I knew I had been dragging my feet about getting an MFA because I was worried about spending the money, which is my mom was like, go get a graduate degree. You need a graduate degree. And I thought like, no, I can write without it. But then I did a summer at Skidmore because it was something. And I met Philip Lopate, who's a nonfiction writer and a memoirist and just a brilliant man and a dear friend and a mentor. And I I was like, oh, right. You need the people around you to write um, who understand what you're going through or what you're trying to do or something or hold a candle of hope for you for many, many, many years while you do this thing that no one thinks you'll finish. So then I did my MFA at, at Bennington. So it's interesting. I, I think you're the first person I know who's done a non-residential MFA. And usually when people come on here, they will, I would say generally like, graduate writing education gets kind of a bad rap on this show, but I usually tell people who are interested that physically putting yourself in a place with a single focus and a bunch of other people who have that singular focus is probably 
the actual purpose of the MFA in a certain place is to give you the space to seriously write. When you're not physically there, like how do you do an MFA when you're not at an MFA? So the thing I liked about it, the tuition wasn't so high and so comparatively. And that means that people of all different ages, all different socioeconomic groups can afford this. And they also had scholarships and different non-residential programs have scholarships. So all these different people can afford it and they have a variety of different experiences. And it turns out with nonfiction, it's kind of not um, useful to just live in a bubble because then you don't have much to write about. And then the way that it works, the way that it also works is that some of the residential programs, you have these critiques that happen often. And I thought, oh, gosh, if I am subject to frequent critiques, I will not be able to write again. And I talked with other people who'd been to programs like that, and it had just stopped them up for several years. Because if you're sort of confronted with all your writing flaws with that frequency, I think it's hard. So the great thing about the non-residential MFA is it only happened twice a year. Twice a year you had a critique with all the other students. And then what you did is every month you sent in a thick packet of writing to your teacher, and they sent it back with all of their scribblings all over it. Were you working on what would become this book when you were doing an MFA? That will date me. I've said it took me seven years, but I finished my MFA certainly earlier than seven years ago. Oh, okay. I think, or no, I actually finished my MFA about seven. Is that true? Maybe yeah. it was seven years ago, 2011. I'm not sure. Maybe it was 2010. I'm not sure. Yes. The essay that is in here, that's more of a sort of grounding essay that enables me to take different parts and magnify them and write about scenes without the reader being like, but wait, I don't understand where we are. Yeah. The essay in there I did write during my MFA. Mm. Like, this happened at this point. This happened at this point. Things that happened before I was born that I just had to do research on and write about and let people know. A Time Magazine article came out. My mother was very upset because my father said he wasn't my father. Then, you know, he got kicked out of Apple. Then, the, you know, the stuff that isn't honestly particularly interesting to me yeah. because I wasn't there. I don't remember it. But I felt I needed to write it. And so... Writing that essay was a little tricky because it was a kind of journalistic task that nonetheless had to be infused with my own sensibility and had to not feel gross. And also was difficult because I looked up some records at the courthouse of this case about my paternity and found things that my mother hadn't told me, not because she'd been keeping them a secret, I don't think, but because she hadn't known like they the state sued my father and trying to figure out if he was my father because he denied paternity. They actually subpoenaed the dental records of my mother's ex-boyfriend. <laughs> Things like that. It was in the case. So reading through this case. And I, I was in London living at the time. And so my mother went to the courthouse to get it for me, which was really nice of her. But I think it pushed her buttons a little because we ended up getting in some sort of screaming fight and she only sent me half of the papers and I had to ask her for the other half. So there were emotional things I was going through about this. I realize now... That was just sort of the tip of the iceberg of kind of trudging through this molassesy sludge of trying to come to terms with my feelings about the past. So occasionally I we go and um, talk, as I said, to MFA students, and I read a lot of the work that people are working on. And a lot of people are writing about their families or their childhood and their past in this kind of way. And I usually want to be like, no, don't do it. Your story is not interesting. <laughs> and you've got this hook that makes people interested in this story. And it, it's almost like a, a very cool magician's trick that I've been sort of wrapped in. And then I'm like in this um, experience of what it's like to be a child 
when you started like writing about this when you were younger, what was your attitude when you first started writing about your past? Like, what did you think about the idea? Of oh God, about I was mortified. Past? Yeah, I was mortified. I thought if I could just write another book first, <laughs> <laughs> if I could just show my writing skill in other ways about right. other things about some other topic, dear Lord. I could then write about this later. For many people, I think they want to do this. And for you, it feels like sort of a blessing and a curse thing where it's like very obvious what someone would want you to write about. And I assume that for you as like that feeling of mortification of, oh, great, like people want to hear about the one thing I really don't want to talk about. Completely. I was trying to write about anything else. And Philip Lopate, who was at my MFA program, he was saying, yes, maybe you need to just write another book about some other topic first. And and I thought, yes, please. But what was coming up was this topic. Yeah. And I think that comes up for a lot of writers, right? A lot of novelists write the story of themselves and then they either publish it or they put it in the drawer. Yeah. A lot of memoirists. I mean, Lopate himself, George Orwell, um, Baldwin, all of these personal essays that are kind of like bite-sized memoir yeah, by people who have not been afraid to investigate themselves as characters, get yeah. under the skin of their own deviousness. Yeah. And then this boy's life where he, and I've, I've said this in other interviews during this time, but the more he, the more he's devious in that book, the more he's naughty and bad, the more I loved him. And so all of these things were my examples for writing about oneself but then but then it just feels like I'm playing to the I'm playing to the wrong crowd when I write about myself mm-hmm. right of course it's like you know poor little rich girl or whatever that I'm complaining about the fact that the memoir I write will have an audience probably because people will be interested in Steve Jobs but oh they might be terribly disappointed because I think they're not going to find out much new about him you yeah. know and then I was hoping he would be terribly boring on the page I was thinking that my mother would be really interesting because she actually is very interesting on the page and my father would be very boring. Not that he was boring in life, but sometimes he was very quiet and sometimes he was probably not terribly interesting to me. But then on the page, it didn't work that way. My mother wasn't always as interesting as I assumed she would be and my father was absolutely completely interesting on the page. Which is a dynamic not only in the book, but in the actual relationships of the people in the books where you write about um, your mother's resentment at like doing all the work and all of these things and then the praise landing on someone else for, you know, you becoming a real adult. Right. And I think some of that was was adolescence, right? I mean, I'm trying to get multiple perspectives in here. So when I'm writing from an adolescent perspective, I am the woman... Yeah. And I am the adolescent. I mean, we have all these ages inside of us all the time. We have, you know, some and I feel like some people have more of the seven year old and some people have more of the 11 year old. And if you spend enough time with someone, you can see what age is sparkling out of their adult persona or what ages. And some people argue that you also have your future ages inside of you. Maybe that's a little too nutso. But you do see sometimes a seven year old and you think, goodness, you seem like you're 40. So I think that when I'm an adolescent and my mother is complaining about my jumping ship to the fancy people and other people taking credit for all of her work. It's also just adolescents trying to get as far away from your mother as possible so you can be sure you won't become her. And then also there was a time in the book, 
I mean, Philip was pointing this out, the, the double perspective of like when I'm going over to my father's house and it's a much colder environment. And so they're giving me less attention and not I'm not the center of the show over there. And maybe I feel badly because I don't know who I am over there and I feel like maybe I'm not so important. And I stay there long enough that I kind of get used to that role and then I go back to my mother's house because I'm going back and forth at this point. Again, this is teenagehood. And my mother is doting. She's kind of following me around, adoring me. Oh, can I make you this? She wants to make sure I get enough protein. She wants to say goodnight to me. She wants to read me a story. She wants, to... And I look down on her a little, you know? And I'm not saying when you're reading that that I actually look down on my mother for adoring me. I'm remembering looking down upon her as an adolescent. So there's a lot of perspectives here. And I think, but I was going to say another thing, which is that I had an editor actually before this editor, um, because I moved, I changed publishing houses towards the end. The book was originally with uh, Penguin, and now it it ended up coming out with Grove Atlantic. Yes, it was with Penguin Press. It was with with Anne Godoff, who's really brilliant. And... We went out to lunch one day, and I, I felt I was taking too long. You know, I didn't imagine this book would take so long. And, and you know, apologized again for being out of touch and apologized again for still not having my book done. And it's kind of embarrassing. You start to avoid your editor a little bit at this point. I think it had been three, three and a half years, maybe four. You know, and I'd been working on it before I had my book contract, too. So, And she said, you know, it's kind of rare that a writer is born into one of these families. So if I were you, I'd take my time and get it right. Hey, I'm going to pause things here briefly to uh, give you a word from Skagen, who are sponsoring this week's episode. Skagen make watches and jewelry inspired by the people who have become known as the happiest people on earth, the Danish. Uh, Danish culture focuses on what's meaningful, being part of a community, making time for relationships, and living in the moment. And that is all reflected in their watches, as well as a minimalist sense of design that reflects the less is more culture it comes from. They've got men's watches, women's watches, jewelry, even smart watches. They actually sent me one. And now I generally feel like you make a decision to either have a nice looking watch or a smart watch. I do not feel that way about this Skagen watch they sent me. It's the kind of thing that I think will look good now and 10 years from now. So if you're looking to pick up something like that and make it part of your life, which I do recommend, it's kind of helped me stop looking at my phone a little bit, uh, get a Skagen watch. You can visit Skagen.com, get a special discount when you sign up for emails. Again, S-K-A-G-E-N.com. Thank you, Skagen. Uh, Here I am back with Lisa Brennan-Jobs. I understand also why it must have taken you forever to write this book because just the very act of like going back to being like I would have no idea how to write about myself as a child. I don't really even remember how my brain worked. Well, then and one or of the tricky like things is that you regress to the point of the simplicity of the child when you write about the child. Yeah. My sentences would get simple, my words would get simple, and I couldn't cast any illumination on that time period because I was in it in this simplistic way or I was out of it. I couldn't sort of dip in halfway 
make it semi-transparent the way you need to if you are going to illuminate it. Yep. And it was very frustrating and I couldn't get out of this place, which was also another reason I kind of had to get rid of my phone and had to get rid of my internet because it reminds you of who you are when you're not so slow and you just don't want to spend spend time in this slow, odd child space. Not because my childhood was so hard, although there were times that were hard, really hard, but because inhabiting the mind of a child and trying to open it up to an adult perspective is just this strange kind of awful kind of work that I would Maybe it's a little bit like learning a language where at the beginning you just feel dumb and you can't. But people have said also, you know, you can read this book as the story of a famous man or you can read this book as the coming of age story of a girl. And of course, against the odds, what I'm hoping for is that people read the story as the coming of age of a girl. But, but in yeah. terms of in But ter- the other thing ahead. is I felt like I had very little margin of error for this book. And I didn't even realize how little margin of error I had. It's yes. been interesting. And I don't read the reviews. I don't read them because we have a baby, a little baby, a five-month-old. And we just moved. And if I read the reviews, even if they're positive, if they're wrong, if they're not what I meant, then it can throw me off. And so I just can't read them. But I do understand from the little snippets that I have very little margin of error because as soon as I let my foot off the pedal, it becomes a Steve Jobs story. And it it's not like you can remove everything that those people are looking for from the book. No. Yet I take the book as a series of very distinct choices about like what kind of a moment belongs in this book and what kind of a moment doesn't belong Thank in this you. book. Yeah. And I want to talk to you about like how you ended up there. Cause I assume that, that from what I understand from what you've been saying, that didn't just happen spontaneously. There wasn't a like, Oh, I just have an instinct about exactly <laughs> what, what to do here. No, I just sat down and it poured out and it, you know, it took three months and you're welcome. <laughs> so, yeah. um, did you do research? Did you do interviews? Like, how did you start constructing what could go in the book before you even decided what should go in the book? Oh, and there's something else I have to say, which is I, my mother kept on saying, you have to come to terms with your history or you will repeat it. You have to understand your history. Understand, is what she yeah. said, or you will repeat it. She kept on repeating what, that. What part of your history was she saying that you were going to repeat? I hadn't had a family yet. I had a boyfriend who was wonderful, but probably wasn't the right partner for me. Yeah. And her point was, if you want to have a family someday that goes off into a different direction for the future. Yeah. If you want to be conscious about your life and choose it, you're going to have to understand what you went through. And she thought writing the book was the way to do that, not say intensive therapy. Well, I've always been a writer. Yeah. And... I think my mother is an artist and she believes in the transformative model, which is you go, you have to go through it to get to the other side, which means you have to do it with your art to transform and then you get through to the other side. And she does that through art. And so I imagine she thought I should. In terms of therapy, I mean, I talk about therapy in the book and how it's been so helpful. And I do, you know, I have seen a therapist, you know, off and on for years and have loved that. But the stories kept on coming up for me. So then yeah. it, then, th- then it was like, not therapy, I guess it's art. You know, oh, I wish it was therapy. I wish it was therapy, but it was art. 
So I'm imagining you you talked to some of the people in this book. So I got this. I got a contract from Penguin Press based on basically a few scenes, including the scene where my mother and I are stealing the couch from my father's house. I say stealing. He said we could get the couch. Yeah. But then we showed up and he wasn't there. So we yeah. had to kind of, my mother had to kind of break into his house and I was watching her. Um, so I got this contract based on basically a few stories. And then my terrible secret, which I told my boyfriend at the time was, I don't remember enough to write a whole book. In the end, I probably wrote seven books, more than seven books. I remembered so much. What happened is if you sit down at Bob's library for long enough writing terrible sentences and terrible scenes, terrible meaning badly written, each scene calls up another scene. It sort of jiggles the memory and brings up, conjures up another scene because you remember the carpet in one house and then you think of the carpet in another and then you remember the Halloween story from that house. And when you remember the Halloween story from that house, you remember the costume from the following year and then you remember your father was with you the following year and then you remember that you stepped on his heels and he snapped at you and then you remember that he was breaking up with his girlfriend on and off and then you remember the trip to Hawaii. And the only thing that ends up in the book is the trip to Hawaii. (laughs) But you find yourself immersed in a whole net, in a constellation of stories, each one connecting to another. And it was amazing how much I remembered. And so sometimes I meet people and they say, goodness, I can't even remember what I had for lunch. How can you have remembered so much? And I think, oh, sit down for a while writing badly and you will remember and remember and remember. And some things weren't terribly pleasant to remember and some things were were incredibly I mean I say sometimes it was so wonderful to spend time with my young parents oh my god I'm older than them I'm older than they were then now and so I get to spend time with them as this woman who knows she can close the computer and go out and have dinner and I get to spend time with them as a girl then but without all of the uncertainty at the edges that I had then when you're a kid and you're re- and you're summoning these memories of childhood you don't actually know everything when you're a kid. In fact, you actually know way less than the adults around you about what's going on, yes. particularly in this case where it seems like people were keeping things from you and there was political drama that was sort of happening above your head. So how did you go about like comparing your memories to the memories of these other people who maybe knew more about what was happening during those times than you did? So I looked at my old journals yeah. Well, there's a lot of scenes How though, in my childhood. How heavy a journal were you? Not so heavy. Okay. Not I, so heavy. All my journals start, I can't believe I'm starting a journal. I don't know <laughs> what to write, period. That. <laughs> I had moments, moments of being prolific in my journal. And I think sometimes those were moments of high emotion. Yeah. So it was good to go back and look at them. I mean, just my rage at not being able to eat more sugar goes yeah. on for pages. But there was one moment I looked at my journal And I found my mother was dating this man named Ron, who was very kind to us and quirky, definitely quirky. I met up with him to do research for this book. And he said, oh, I made all my mistakes on you. And I thought, oh, goodness, thanks a lot. I remembered you were really nice. (laughs) But in the journal, I had written something like, I love my dad, Steve Jobs, not Ron. I love my dad. I love him, exclamation mark. I love him, exclamation mark. I love him. You know, and then there was a sticker from Next that he'd given me, pasted on. And I kind of remembered, you know, in this kind of young handwriting slanted. And I remembered this bloom of just joy and also a feeling of luck. Like, oh, 
I didn't have a dad when I was younger, kind of met him when I was eight. But now I've got the best one, so it's okay. You know, he's handsome, he's famous, he's young, he's got a Porsche. Like, oh my God, I lived for so long in this drab world, but now I found a jewel and it's mine, so it's okay. And it's like the beginning of a children's fantasy novel. In right. A way. It's like Harry Potter. Yeah. It's like, oh, I'm living under the stairs, but I'm a wizard. Yeah. Yeah. It felt like that. And then, so the other thing I did, so I looked at journals, talked with a lot of people. My dad's ex-girlfriend, my mom, my friends at the time went to Palo Alto and wrote for several months to smell the smells and drive the drives, go back to the cafes, go back to the schools. And then the other thing I did is my ex-boyfriend helped me. He was really into super sticky notes because you can put them on the wall and then they just stay there for weeks. So you can take your time with the stories that are missing or you can just sometimes wake up early in the morning and just gaze at it and try to think about anything you might be missing and putting it all in order that way. And then you... I would just... It, it would stop. It would pause me for so long trying to figure out the organizational scheme of the sticky note timeline. I'd be like, okay... Green is like a memory. Blue is like a fixed event that there's a news reporter or something like that. So one thing I was really helped by is that he is a screenwriter. I mean, he writes scripts. This scripts sounds like a screenwriter. Incredibly difficult to write. They yeah. are they, and they're not like book writing at all. They're their structure and their picture structure. So it's very different, but it's very useful for outlines. And the other thing is just for me, one word will conjure up a whole week of memories. And so it can be like, again, like molasses moving through these stories. But for him, it was just one word, one story, easy, put it up next. So he helped me with moving quickly through the timeline that could have otherwise, not because of the color of the stickies, but because of the sort of dredging up of memories could have taken months or years. I mean, it's just too long. <laughs> and then I compared it against um, known events. And putting it in a timeline of known events made me able to structure it better. Like I'm bouncing on a trampoline with my father in some scene. I don't know him very well. I'm terrified about people being able to see my underwear because I'm wearing shorts. And I'm self-conscious because my father was awkward. Turns out I trip over things all the time. I can dance, but I trip when I'm walking. And he had a bit of that quality too. I don't know if he could dance. My mom said he was a bit awkward. Who knows? But we're on this trampoline together. And then I was able to call his ex-girlfriend and find out when that party was because it was his birthday party. And then I could put it on the timeline too next to his next presentation. When did I move in? How old was I? So when I put it against a known timeline, which was very lucky I had, I could route out some time changes or I then it created some third things I didn't realize were there when events that I hadn't realized were up against each other were up against each other. Um, so that helped too. And then then there was the more emotional timeline. Like, I mean, I don't know if it could be told as a timeline, but the more emotional... Arcs. Yes. I'm sitting there with the timeline with my ex-boyfriend, my boyfriend at the time. And he says, and I've written a lot of parts about my adolescence, and I'm basically trying to get you to feel bad for me because I feel really bad. And I feel really ashamed about something was clearly wrong with me that I wasn't more lovable. And... I can find a bunch of things that are wrong 
because I was a teenager and and because I'm human. But I feel bad. And also the other thing is like this famous person that the world loves, I'm not immune to the shame of the fact that he's not totally always in love with me. So he's okay. What's wrong with me? And so that is a deep shame. And I would like to say it's gone, but it's still there. And so what I'm doing with my adolescence is I'm writing it so that I'm hoping and I'm trying to manipulate the reader, not in those words, to feel bad for me. Mm -hmm. You know, we didn't have heat downstairs, so I'm living without heat in the winter. And we didn't, he wouldn't really buy a couch. They kind of made me babysit a lot. He wouldn't buy me an extra pair of jeans. So my ex-boyfriend was saying he was looking at this adolescent map and he'd read some of the adolescent stories and he said, Lisa, you know, I've known you your whole life and you kind of get what you want. You know, I'm not a wilting violet. I kind of make things work for myself. And he's like, I'm just not buying it. I'm just not buying it. And that was very useful because I realized the story I was trying to tell wasn't the truth. Like, okay, so her dad in a fairly warm area didn't get the whole heating installed and changed. But like, really, was that that bad? You know what? I think I could have changed rooms if I wanted to. And worst case scenario, I could have said, I was pretty forceful. I could have said, you know, hey, Steve, you're not getting heat. Then I'm at it. I'm out of here. I'm going to my mom's house. Bye. You know, I had power all the time. So I had to go back. So this was another part of creating the story. I had to go back and investigate my own version of the story against this new awakening of, oh, right. Oh, right. I was manufacturing and creating this story at every step. How did I do that? And it was interesting because before I did that in my adolescence, in the stories, I disappeared. You're kind of like, where is Lisa? And that was what happened, the, you know, for many drafts in the beginning. Okay, but we really don't know about this character. Who is she? Yeah. And when I finally realized that I'd had agency all along, started thinking, you know, maybe I was just a kid. Maybe I can be devious. Maybe, maybe like in this boy's life, the worse I am, the more people who are reading it won't think badly of me, but will actually like me. <laughs> you know, I mean, who knows? It kind of freed me up. And then I got into more stories that I hadn't been willing to tell or even admit to myself, like the Harvard story, which is toward the end when I'm kind of scrappy and finagling my way into Harvard, basically, as much as well as I can, and not by the book, not by the rules. And that story, I thought, I can't tell that story. I mean, anything but that story, because then everyone will know that I'm this, like, manipulative, scrappy person. But then you set it down on paper, your most shameful story, and hey, it's not so bad. There's two forms of subjectivity, it seems like to me, about creating a book like this. The first form of subjectivity is that it's you're writing about your own experience, which actually many people triangulated that experience. And then also, this book is not 10,000 pages. It's not every scene you possibly remember from your childhood. So there's a process of editing, which is its own form of manipulation it's which scenes do you show in the movie i'm pleased to find out that you are living with a screenwriter while doing this because it it seems it's a screenwritery kind of process where you say hey this movie is going to be about two hours long 
We've only got room for this yeah. many scenes. He was not helpful it. with you got to end when you go to college because this is a coming of age book. Yes. You can't just sort of dither on through your 20s because there were a lot of stories I wrote about my 20s. But that was the point when the book basically had to end. Yeah. Because that is the turning point when you move from being a part of a family to going out on your own. And the next turning point doesn't happen for me, probably, until I'm 40 and I have a baby or 39. Yeah. And so I had to end it there. I think there's also like a form of writing a memoir of yourself as an adult when you're an adult is a, seen as a form of indulgence, but writing about a childhood like this, it's like, well, there's a universal element to that that makes it more appealing. Well, the way the screenwriter put it was you necessarily don't have control when you're a child. Yes. So you get the benefit of the doubt. So you can be a very bad child. Right. And you still get the benefit of the doubt. I want to talk about that, um, the subjectivity of a child's experience, though. So you have this memory, and then you call up, let's say, your father's ex-girlfriend. I think her name was Tina. Yeah. And she says, that's not how I remembered it at all. You know, I assume that your memory does not overlap exactly with all of these people's memories, particularly about things like how you view characters, like, someone like your mother in the story and stuff like that. So like, I don't know what it was, but every single time I've called someone up and talked to them about the story or shared with them a part of the book, someone I've been close with, the neighbors in high school, the librarian in yeah. middle school who didn't find it until she found it on a, a librarian's book conference. And apparently she grabbed it and found herself in it. And then she came back the next day and said, it's exactly the way I remember it. Really? Yes. Even during the interview process before you'd written it, just when you would say, like, hey, I'm writing about this. Yes. This is what I remember. Tina's cousin, Finn, there was a night when we all went and played chicken on the lawn at Stanford. And before I even brought it up and started talking about it, he said, remember that night when we all played chicken? And he would sort of add and embellish that memory or remind me of which lawn it was. But the memories I had... I mean, it's funny because I'm like, am I being defensive because this has been sort of slightly called into question? Oh, has I? Well, I'm just, gonna, oh no, it's just my. I'm gonna, think, I'm gonna be honest and just say I'm not. I have not followed the like um, media narrative arc of this book that closely. Me so either. Please this tell. Is the only, yeah, we're like yeah. we're like the two people who don't know here, <laughs> trying to talk to each other. So I don't know exactly. I know a little bit, but my I don't know most. Husbands of this stuff. tried to fill me in on places that I don't know, and then when I've been, you know, fortunate enough to go on these programs and they've quoted people. I've had to learn about things I didn't know. But I guess what I would say is, no, I got weirdly resounding, yes, that is exactly what I remember. But then, and I, I did bring up earlier the time that my filmmaker ex-boyfriend was saying, no, I knew you. This isn't the shading that's correct. Right. The perspective, And the perspective changes everything because once you... Once you have an active role, even if it's devious in something, you have power and it unlocks it. But I didn't have the experience where anybody said my memory was different. In addition to the librarian, oh, my neighbors, the neighbors when I was in high school, they just wrote me an email because they just read it. And they said, if you ever need anybody to vouch for you, it's exactly as we remember it. My mother has said the facts are true, but I would have a slightly different interpretation um, or a very different interpretation about certain things. Once she said, when she started reading it, she said it was a roller coaster for her. And I, I gave it to her before it was published. I gave it to most people in the family before it was published, which my editor was 
sort of like, are you nuts? But I thought I had to go through this with my mother first. And I knew she would read it. And I was getting texts in the middle of the night. But she said, you're absolutely incorrect about the number of houses we've lived in. And then I sent her the list because I had carefully compiled from our many conversations I'd had and and everything and other people, you know, this list of the 13 places we'd lived before I was seven. And I said, okay, great. Let me send you the list I've got. You tell me what I've got wrong. And then she said, oh, no, that's right. You know, and then she said, no, it's not true. We didn't have furniture. It's not true. And it upset her deeply, I think, because she thought that was a statement of her parenting when I did certainly didn't mean it that way. And she was saying, we got a bedroom set from your grandparents. But I said, well, mom, why did we get the bedroom set? Was it because we had no furniture? (laughs) Yeah. And I understand we might have had a bed, but in the living room, when we looked at it, remember, it had no furniture. I remember. And then she said, oh, okay. But one thing that happened, there was a time when I talked to Tina, my dad's ex-girlfriend, and she said, do you remember when we went to Hawaii that time your dad took you you on his lap and was pointing out body parts cuz she said he'd he'd even maintained to her that we weren't related but then we're in Hawaii together and he's saying look our fingernails are the same look look how we have the same kind of toes look we both have our eyebrows the same and this is actually a moment i guess when he's claiming me and i remembered it pretty well but i don't remember it as if i was there But because she talked about that scene and I remembered him doing things like that and holding me and I remembered something like that in Hawaii, mostly I remember thinking, oh, could you stop talking? I want to go eat dessert. So I wrote that scene with a little less memory than some of the scenes I wrote based on a conversation with her and knowing that I wanted to put it in because, God, what a metaphor. When you talk about shading, and I think that's like the central issue in this book like it's certainly like when I hear people reacting or whatever it's like everything is in how you interpret that shading and everything about the book like you know a private detective could have probably compiled the significant facts of your story but it's so much about the tone and shading and almost literally at times how you hear like sentences that people say like I I think about at the very beginning of the very first chapter your father says that you smell like a toilet and everything about that moment is about how you read it and how the shading comes through. And I think the book taken as a whole is about you shading your mother and father and and showing how you remember them, how, what, how you interpreted their actions and words. Or I'm letting you interpret. Yeah. I think that I, and to my own, (laughs) at my own peril, Yeah. The other thing I wanted to say about pulling together this book is that publishers now don't hire fact checkers. Maybe they never did, but I did hire a fact checker. And he went through the book and was able to correct me on a few, like, oh, no, you must have been nine here, not eight. Interesting. Things like that. Or he would find a fact as he was looking things up and he would say, oh, did you know this? You should put this in. And I would say, no, 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 that's past your brief. Yeah, I You're remember. not supposed to tell me what to put in. I, I used to uh, work at a publisher when I was in my early 20s and I remember there was like a couple fact checkers who were like zealous to the point yeah. where I was like, you're kind of like grinding an ax yes. with this like note at a certain point. Yes. Uh, I think that we were only doing fact checking for things where that like legal flagged it. Right. So and I assume that like so fact checking for that... legal the publishers do yeah. cover. Yeah. But I wanted to do fact checking and I know that for example the 
biography of my father, which I have not read, Walter Isaacson's book, was not fact-checked. It would have taken months. My book took a month and a half to fact-check. Yeah. I think he took a month and a half to go through it because he had so many different things to look up. And now my own subjective experience, obviously, is not something that can be fact-checked. But there are a lot of things like how long it takes to get from one cafe to the other when you're on skates that a fact-checker checks. Yeah, well, Um, having the facts locked almost gives you the freedom to do that shading and that subject and stuff because you don't want people criticizing the facts and saying, and also her feelings are like, invalid or the the shading and the the tone is invalid because the facts are wrong it's almost like a like it wouldn't in any way bother me to learn that it was eight not nine but i understand that that's like almost part of a larger thing that you're trying to pull off here yes i felt that if it wasn't as accurate as it could be factually that it would invalidate the truth of the emotions of coming of age because especially because of this particular circumstance where there's someone who's not only mine but is everyone's and yeah. everyone has a claim many people perhaps have a greater claim on him than I do i talk about you know when he after he died people coming up to me and saying he was like a father to me and thinking oh <laughs> maybe like oh Good is he you. yours <laughs> or is he, is he yours or is he mine because yeah. maybe he is yours you know yeah. i mean and and that makes me sad and angry and chastened. So I had to fact check it. But I got a note recently from my cousin. She's in a scene earlier where my father is berating her, even though she's just a girl at a restaurant. She's being a little loud. She ordered a hamburger. I think he must have arrived. You know, there's many things that happen beyond the pages of this book that I don't know about. Maybe that day he'd found out something horrible at work. Maybe he'd broken up with someone. I have no idea. All I know is he arrived out of sorts and he yelled at a girl in a restaurant. And my mother and I remember this. But when I called my cousin to ask her about it, she said, I just don't remember my childhood. I think I must have blanked it out, blanked out that scene and other things. So I wrote it without her. And she recently texted me and she said she was reading the scene and she was crying. And a lot of the things that my father was berating her for, she said she felt insecure about herself for. Oh, I felt so badly. Just, I said, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm sorry to have stirred it up. And she said, no, no, emotions are okay, Lisa. It's okay. And I thought, oh gosh, she's grown up more than I have. I'm glad you brought up that scene because if there's one scene that like toes like the very edge tonally of like can you sympathize with this per- character that might have been the scene for me in the book um it's a low point yeah, yeah it was a, a low point and i felt it had to be there so tell me about like d- it like, happened and it was bad and my mother and i remember it it was in bravo phono and it was bad right and the way that and you've sad. depicted this scene you must have known like that there was going to be a low point, right? Well, like, it's the lights and darks, right? Yeah. I can't get this character in unless I have all the lights and darks. And I hope sometimes the light recedes because not knowing my father's charm and his dearness, his sweetness in person when he was that way, perhaps it's hard not to gloss over some of those scenes as a reader. Or maybe I am 
as I think some people have felt reading this book, sort of oppressed without knowing it. But we can love complicated people. We can also accept that there are dualities inside of people. I think we can accept that. And the other thing is, with your parents, you know, I mean, I contain some of that. So not only did I, do I, did I love him, do I love him, but his dearness and sensitivity was not just something I observed. It was something that connected to something in me. And so, of course, I, well, not of course, but I was willing to keep on trying for those times because they were profoundly meaningful. And then you see someone who completely fails, like in this scene with my cousin where he's excoriating a girl or where he fails with me. But then you see that he is sometimes a failure and then he keeps on trying and how it wasn't like I think of him the way other people do necessarily as this sort of shining success. Although I think he's been written about as someone who does things like he did with my cousin. I think so. I was wondering, like, what is so shocking about this for people? And I think the only difference is here it's visceral. And also I'm I'm his daughter, so it's closer in. Yeah, it's a double whammy because we've read stories about Steve Jobs like screaming about at, like people at work before, um, but now we're like first grounding a reader in the experience of being a child, and then saying, "And here's the low point. Here's a low point from of that be, perspective." From that perspective. Yes. I mean, I think it's a testament to the effectiveness of your writing that people are disturbed by it. But I noticed just in my very tiny. Media, like I remember Vanity Fair did an excerpt from the book, right? Yes, and they they crammed together a bunch of things for a heightened sense. Exactly. So what I wonder about in your experience is in the book, that is a low point, but it's- It's balanced. It's in a symphony. It's a moment in a longer symphony. And if you take these moments and take them out by themselves, they mean something different. They're horrific. Well, and you're saying that you wanted to um, show a duality of this person- but there's no duality if you only show one moment. If you show only the low point, the, the duality is missed. That was maybe the lucky thing about the Vanity Fair thing coming out first. Yeah. And about the profile in the New York Times, which was also not balanced, coming out first. By the time the book came out and some people started reading it, that stuff, which was is the most shocking stuff, we'd already gotten that out of the way, most of it. And then we could look at the book, which is much more balanced. Yeah. And people do have low points. Again, this may be a more dramatic low point than a lot of people have, but I'm not sure if you were really to get into it. I'm not sure if this is more dramatic than most people have. The other thing I was worried about was my mother. I was worried about, there's a scene where she's screaming in a car, and I think I was four or four and a half, and she's screaming. And she said when we talked about it, after I'd written, we talked about it. She said, I remember when I was screaming. She wasn't screaming at me. She was screaming at life. She was screaming at the world. But she was swearing and she was screaming and spittle was flying and she was slamming the dash and it was raining and we were in the car and I was terrified, you know, and I was only four. So she said, I remember at that time that you were going to remember it later. Yeah. So I was scared to put that scene in. Because I I wasn't sure if the reader knew my mother well enough by that point. Were they just going to hate her? 
Yeah. And of course, with the scene with my cousin in the restaurant when my father is yelling at her, I was scared to put in that scene because that was a low point. Without having the darks and the lights, I cannot create a picture of my life. Yeah. My childhood did have lows and highs. I would I would do it again. The highs were extraordinary. And so were the lows. I like that. I enjoyed being in it at many points. So I'm trying to give you the joy with the complexity. But some people have felt that I don't even understand my own story as if I didn't craft it, as if I didn't decide, okay, I got to put that scene in. I know it's dark, but if I don't put that scene in, then I'm not being real with you about what happened. Or I'm not giving you the relief of the joy because you didn't experience the terrible sadness of the dark parts. The toilet scene, for example. Yes. It's been so interesting. I... With Vanity Fair, they let me be a part of what excerpt they chose. That was part of the stipulation in yeah. the contract. It's a mashup of of pieces from different parts of the book. Yes, and they really it's wanted... A, it's a the, weird format. They really wanted the Lisa scene at the end. Ah. This reveal about the Lisa computer at the end. So that was my compromise, which maybe I shouldn't have done. It's an interesting thing because you get control. You say in the contract, Lisa gets to control what excerpt goes in there. But it's very clear if I don't choose, if I don't give them anything they want, then it's not going to go. Yeah. And I felt like, well, if they want the Lisa scene at the end, it's kind of gimmicky. I'm kind of embarrassed by it, but probably not that many people are going to read it. So I think, okay, we'll have that scene at the end. And then what they had in the beginning, what they originally wanted was maybe more than half of explication this essay I'd written to just give you a grounding so that I could write the scenes of my book. But the problem with an essay and explication was this isn't what the book is. The book is not an article. The book is not a journalistic article. It is a memoir. If you so could I, fit the book in a Vanity Fair article, you would not have had to read the write the book. Correct. So I wanted to start with the beginning then because I felt like it's made to pull you in. I'm a character. I'm devious. Yeah. I'm not just a witness. Let's start with the beginning. And then let's and then I just decided, okay, let's take all the different scenes that are dealing with this issue of the computer. Turns out they're all quite dramatic. Whoops. So I helped pull together that excerpt thinking that at least it had some continuity and at least it was interesting. But I didn't understand how much it would get. How much interest it would get and how much ire it would get or how much passion and how much people would feel even from this tiny excerpt that they knew my story and then how much they would excerpt it i didn't realize the excerpt would be excerpted oh yeah which is crazy (laughs) so the book isn't out yet and suddenly people are deciding they know my family and are taking little bits of it excerpts of the excerpt so but the toilet scene it's interesting because some people have said oh my god it's so shocking it's so horrible and then i've had to say for the record i did smell like a toilet yeah, I was that's... spraying myself with this rose water, as I explained, and it was turning, it was going off on me because it was natural rose. And so by the time I said goodbye to my father, I must have smelled horrible. And so to some degree, he was just in a very kind way telling me how I smelled. I and mean, it... not in a kind way, in an abrupt way. But he was a person who was going to tell you the way it was. 
that and that's like part of the character that you're building over time. I mean, this is what I guess what I feel about like you needed the time to get it out, which is like yeah, that is setting up. Like that you're telling us like this is the kind of person this person is on their deathbed. And this is also the kind of person this person was as a uh, father in his 20s. You know, like that there is a continuity to all these experiences. And that's what being in a family is like is it's like this incredible building upon of experiences where you can read someone telling you like smell you smell like a toilet as like both normal and also as like that really captures Yes. You know, it was normal. And it was also it was hurtful. I mean, I'm going to visit my sick father, hoping we're going to have some sort of resolution, feeling so insecure that I'm doing all these weird things like spraying myself with someone else's rose water and stealing bits and bobs around the house. And then he says that. And I'm what I'm hoping for is, of course, that we're going to have some sort of Hollywood ending. But what I'm terrified about is he's going to say you smell like a toilet and he's going to be right. And I smell like a toilet, which imagine how shameful that is. Yeah. And then he's going to die. And that's going to be it. And so I'm avoiding him more and more because I know he might say something like that. And that might be it. You know, so it wasn't a joyful moment. But at the same time, it also wasn't particularly cruel of him. This book becomes the readers now. But sometimes hearing their reflection on my life feels very off or painful. I wonder if, and I, and I wonder if, if this was something you thought about while you were working on the book, it's unusual to be writing an autobiographical memoir in which there are competing products that tell portions of the same story. Yeah. I'm just thinking in the last few years, and I'm probably forgetting some, but there's the Walter Isaacson book, which was a, a pretty big deal. Uh, there was the um, movie that Aaron Sorkin wrote, um, which you're a major character. How did you regard all of the other noise while you were writing this book? Were you thinking about someone who already comes in with this knowledge or whatever? Or did you have to wall yourself off from everything else? So I wall myself off for equanimity. I didn't read Walter Isaacson's book. I didn't see Aaron Sorkin's movie or read the script. Apparently, I am a major character in it, even though I met with him for coffee three times and didn't talk about my family. I heard that Walter Isaacson's book was being made into a movie. And I heard Aaron Sorkin was doing it. And I had previously heard that Walter didn't capture me at all because I didn't talk to him. And I'd heard worse than that, that I was kind of cold and standoffish in the book. And that's not who I am. And I had been trying so hard, even if I had been trying so strangely to have some sort of resolution with my father and to love him in some way, that the idea that I was not visiting or that I was cold and standoffish in this book was wounding. And so when I heard that there was a movie being made, I sought out Sorkin. And my whole goal was just for him to understand that I was a person. So if he was going to put me in his movie, hopefully as a small character, that he would, if he portrayed me badly, he'd have his own conscience to contend with. That was my goal. I want you to understand I'm a person here. Yeah. I'm a person. I'm a person and I loved my father. Yeah. And, but anyway, so I didn't see these movies and things and I didn't engage with them and I was thinking recently of that scene and my dad and I watched Pee Wee's Big Adventure and I was thinking 
at the end of Pee-wee's Big Adventure, they make a movie of Pee-wee, of the life of Pee-wee. And Dottie says, Pee-wee, aren't you going to see the movie about yourself? And he says, I don't have to see it, Dottie. I lived it. You know, and the movie, of course, is nothing like him. There's some sort of strapping lad playing Pee-wee. But why would I need to read this biography about someone I knew? It just, I mean, also, frankly, it just highlights the, all the parts of my father I didn't know. Yeah. I am the last person who would get to talk about his business life. And his business life seemed so fun. I wish I could have been involved in it. I mean, I talk in the book about the end, you know, how he says he's apologizing to me for not being around. And he says, I owe you one. I owe you one, which is such a weird phrase. I never really heard him say it before then, but he kept on repeating it. And I was trying to give him some sort of relief. You know, he's so thin and he's waited to apologize. He's wasting away. I mean, there's no argument I can give. But I say to him, maybe next time, if there is a next time, I mean, who knows? We don't know. Maybe there are other lives. We can be friends. And I meant it as a kind of knife stab, like friends, thanks. But also, he had friends, dear friends. And I I didn't get to be one of them this time. And so reading the Isaacson, I thought, would bring up so many feelings for me, not only of parts I did know about my father, but also this whole world that I didn't know about. So I don't want to read that while I'm writing my own book. And also, I'm not a Steve Jobs junkie. Like, yes, he was my father. Yeah. But I imagine had he not been, I wouldn't have been the person that would have read the Isaacson anyway Um, or seen the movie. My father died pretty suddenly a few years ago. Oh, I'm sorry. And um, he had an obituary in the New York Times. Like, I could tell that it was important to people in his life that I pushed to get this obituary. And he was a geneticist and a scientist. And the New York Times wow. called me and was trying to fact check right. the thing, and I was like, "I'm sorry, I don't know anything about his work." Like, I like I'm his kid. I was like, I was like, I feel bad. I probably should have paid more attention to genetics and like right. his research. But I, I was like, here are the phone numbers of a bunch of his colleagues. I have no idea right. like what he was doing all this time. Like he would travel three or four months out of the year, and sometimes I, when I'm staying in like a weird nameless hotel, I have this weird flash where I'm like, "Wow, this was like." three or four months of the year every for him. From, for him. What was he doing in these hotels? What, right. Did he watch TV? But what I was don't, his life like? What was his life me? like? Yeah, with, with that why I wasn't there. But I think almost that's the healthiest relationship of a child and parent is when the child, to some degree, is so involved in their own life, they're not obsessed with their father's life. And there was something interesting about having a famous father that people assumed that I was obsessed with his life or particularly interested in the details of his life that didn't involve me. Yeah, like you were reading the technology press gossip and following on. (laughs) Yeah, also, I mean, and also I'm not talented particularly that way. There were things that he did that I was independently interested in. I like design. Yeah. I find it interesting. I like aesthetics. I like gardens. I like houses, construction, architecture. There were certain areas of interest that were fun. Sometimes we had a similar sense of humor. But if it didn't overlap with me, I wasn't pursuing it. So that's the kind of selfishness you need to have if you're going to write a memoir later, I guess. This is not a biography of him. This is a memoir. Yeah. Was it ultimately cathartic to do this, to have this experience? I feel like a lot of people, when they're starting their MFA, probably, like, you know, you start the first story that then you're like, I'm going to write a whole book about this and I'm going to publish it, whatever. And it's like so few people actually realize 
that entire sequence of getting out their childhood. My like, agent, David McCormick, who has been great, he thought I was going to give up. And I think a lot of the friends that I lost touch with just thought something had gone horribly wrong in my life because I just, you know, I'm not on Facebook and my phone is, I leave it at a cafe so that I can think, you know, for sometimes a week at a time. This made dating very difficult, actually, <laughs> very difficult. Um, well, you leave your phone at a cafe? I left it at a cafe down the street. I went in one day and I said, hey, you guys, I know this is a weird thing, but I can't write if I have my phone. It's too much instant gratification. You get to a hard sentence, you realize you're writing crap and you want to look up the New York Times and what's happening. Yeah. Because at least it feels somewhat productive or you want to text someone or you want to look at your email and you kind of can't give yourself that escape. The phone just provides an escape from misery. And you need to like burrow into the misery, or I did. I needed to kind of just burrow into the sense of deep failure to get anywhere. And was I getting anywhere? Who knows? Lisa, I think we just came up with a great business. Burrowing to what? Well, no, we're going to create a phone locker system where we rent out space for people's phones. Yeah, no, but I I wish we had, but I have another solution now. Okay. So I would leave it at the cafe for sometimes a week at a time. But then later, a poet friend of mine found on Amazon a food addictions lockbox. A bear box. I've been talking about this myself. It's not the phone that I want to put in there. But they're like 50 bucks. You can put, they got like a time lock on them. Yeah. I mean, it's incredibly expensive. It is. It's like, I think it's like 50. Well, I think the smaller ones are less. They, the, I have to give a recommendation. You can lock it for even days at a time. Read the customer reviews of those bit lockable bear boxes. The ones I was looking at is actually a clear one. Can you Mine see your clear. phone clear? And a lot of people are like, well, can't you just smash the box? And they're like, yeah, the box is like 50 bucks. So you're creating basically a $50 fine. Every time you broke out and this guy was like, I've had 11 of these. Yes. I've had to destroy 10 of them, but it's like really improved my life. Yes. Yeah. So I also, my, the Pope, my poet friend who found this solution was like, they sell replacement bottoms, you know, yeah. if you smash it. Which oh, I really? They do. They sell okay. replacement bottoms for people that smash it, which is hilarious, right? That you do this thing to give yourself self-control and then you couldn't even maintain it. I find there's something that happens I bet it's physiological when I lock my phone away for a time. I just relax. I think, ugh, it's locked. Yeah. I better get to work. And you can see that with deep enthusiasm, I run to my desk. But it's really important to have a way to give yourself mental space. It's like boredom, I imagine, for children. Yeah. Like the last thing kids want is to be bored. But then you get into it. You fight your way out of it. And that it turns out to be the process that's important. Yeah. I feel like that's sort of a me- like a metaphor for the coming of age story is like yeah. you need like you need to be bored slash humiliated slash ashamed slash have a shitty time to like emerge as an adult. Otherwise, you're not emerging. I guess that's true. Like that is those are the components of the chrysalis. And man, I didn't believe when I started this book in drafting, I thought that this would come pouring out. I didn't quite understand that it was going to come out bad first. And I'd heard that Ira Glass thing, that wonderful Ira Glass quote about you go into the arts because you you have taste. You understand what good writing is. And then you get into it. And that very thing that you had, that ability to tell good from bad, 
lets you know that what you're creating is absolutely crap. Yeah. And your talent has to catch up with your taste. Yeah. And he sort of implores you not to stop. And I thought, like many things, that I was some sort of exception to this rule. Yeah. And it turns out I am just absolutely the rule. And I started out because emotionally I didn't know what I was writing and I didn't know who I was yet in this coming of age story. My sentences didn't know who they were either. And they were bad. And I knew they were bad. And I hadn't written bad sentences for a while. I hadn't put myself in a place where I was without enough knowledge, vulnerable enough that I revealed how bad I was. And it was such a boogeyman. It was such a monster. I just wanted to run away screaming. It's a funny way to think of it backwards that the privilege for you isn't so much being able to get a book deal as a first-time writer out of the MFA, but that the book deal forces you to not give up. That the book deal, that like having a true structure to do this book like makes you keep doing it in a way that would be really hard, I think, if no one was like planning to publish it or whatever. It like forces you to get from point A to point B, even if you're experiencing that like Ira Glass effect of like, since this is your yeah, it first... gave me a deadline. It gave me an, a, a series of people who I was accountable for. Gave you someone to be terrified of. It gives you a boogeyman, an editor. But it gave me, I think this book, a lot of it was finding out, trying to find out whether I was legitimate. I think that was the deep shame. It's like, yeah. I don't deserve to be here. I wasn't wanted. And I think this book was like a, a struggle to find out why I deserve to exist and whether I deserve to exist, I was thinking like, it's like that I don't know this well enough to even talk about it, but Jacob and the angel. And it's like, you won't let it go until it blesses you. And it, it felt like my sentences are still bad. I don't know why I deserve to exist. I don't know why I deserve to exist, but I won't let this book go until I get my answer, uh, until I don't feel so bad all the time. And so that's why I wasn't going to give up on doing this book. There was It wasn't because I was accountable to an editor. They hadn't paid me much. I, I, I got a – my first advance was pretty high for as advances go. Um, I didn't realize it was actually too high. And when I changed editors, I actually insisted and got – I mean insisted on a much lower advance. It's like a tenth. You had to return the original advance then? Yes. So the original advance – they hadn't paid me much of it yet. Ah, okay. They had paid me um, some of it. What would usually happen is you would, if you wanted to change editors, your new advance would pay back your old advance. Right. If your new advance was lower, then your new advance and some portion of the profits, whatever they may be, would pay back your old advance. What we actually did, I just decided, even before I had a new publisher, that we would just pay them back. And because we were doing it all at once, and they would definitely get it. I think we paid them back a little bit less of what they had given out. But what they had given out was a smaller portion of the full amount. Right. And it wasn't that. That wasn't what I was accountable to. Because what I was accountable to was as soon as I had an impression that maybe somehow this book would help me understand who I was, I wasn't going to let it go until... It blessed me. But 
But then I was trying to make it a book for other people. Yeah. So that was the sort of final wish is that it's not just for me. And a friend, um, a very talented writer, Jamie Quattro, actually helped me edit it. And she helped me cut a lot. What got cut? Where I was like, I mean, right now we're in a recording studio, right, with glass. And some of the scenes, it was like I was banging on the glass, screaming again and again, the same story, because I didn't think you got it. And she was quite exquisite in her editing because she would say, we got it. Yeah. Like scenes that were that like mirrored other scenes in the book where you were trying to achieve the same thing again. Yes. Or where I would conversations would go on too long and she would say, "Okay, by this point, cut. Or, you know, even some brush cleaning in between scenes where I would say the same thing again, the same note within a scene, because I would think maybe you didn't get it. Yeah. But you got it. And the other thing she did, we would go to dinner sometimes and I would say, oh, and then this happened also. And I would think it wasn't necessary. And she'd say, write that down that you need that. Or she would say, oh, maybe that could go at the end. And I would say, you think? Or, oh, no, that's too embarrassing. I can't put it in. No, it's not. Do it. Put it in. You know, so that sort of thing. And then she had wonderful tips like you don't need to say left and right. You can say just turned because as you're reading, lefts and rights confuse you. And actually, as a reader, it doesn't make sense. Is it is it more difficult, in your opinion, to edit writing that is autobiographical or memoir? Because when someone says like that doesn't need to be there, they're actually saying like remove this from your story of yourself like when you're thinking no this is really important and a independent third party editor is going like I think we could lose that it was incredibly emotional yeah but I imagine it's incredibly emotional with fiction too but it was there was a lot of catharsis there when she would say you can cut this I got it and I would say but no I don't think you do have it do you have it what I'm trying to say is well and she would say yeah I know and she would perhaps be able to state even more eloquently what I was trying to communicate, she would say, this is how I'm feeling. This is what I get when I read this. And I could finally take a deep breath that I had communicated. And I wasn't so alone. But sometimes we would get in, you know, pretty heated discussions because I was so sure that she hadn't understood what I was trying to say. And she would have to say, no, I have. I've understood. Here's why. And the same thing with my editor at Grove, Elizabeth Schmitz, who was amazing and would edit, did two whole drafts with a pencil. And they also included fights. And there were things that she said, you need to cut this. And I couldn't. No. And she would say, well, it's your book. Ultimately, it is your book. But if she said something like, you need to cut this scene, and I knew it could not be cut, then I knew I had more work to do. In other words, the cut wasn't the answer, but there was something wrong. Where do you uh, where do you go from here now? You can't do another one like this. You don't have oh, another you don't have another childhood to write about. So uh, what's next for you? I don't know yet. I write nonfiction. Yeah. And I'm so excited to not write about myself. And that's all I can say now. What from writing about yourself? did you learn that you would bring to not writing about yourself? Like what from this experience of investigating your own childhood would you bring to a general nonfiction practice, do you think? Maybe the main thing was just how to write a book. And there was something I read 
Joyce Carol Oates said something about, I think it was Joyce Carol Oates, that she was in the ocean. Maybe it was someone else. Anyway, she was in the ocean. I think it was a novelist for a long time swimming without a view of land. And when I came across that, when I was writing this book, I thought, oh, (laughs) so that's what it is to write a book because I am definitely feeling like there is no land in sight and I've been swimming for a really long time. And I thought it was wrong and I had lost faith I would ever get to the land. Again, I was going to get there somehow, even if it took my whole life. Yeah. So I think for next time, I'm hoping, you know, each creative project is its own thing. You always think, well, now I know something. So next time it won't be this so hard. I read something. um, Spielberg wrote something about that. He said each time he thought he had it in the bag, it wasn't a great movie. He said that, that Jaws was every day a new, horrific, terrifying, lack of faith, disastrous event. They never thought that it was going to be any good. He said the movies where he wasn't worried about how it was going to turn out, where he had the script and all the turning points and everything set up and everything was going to work, like Jurassic Park 2, I think, (laughs) just weren't great. So maybe each time... You cannot avoid this horrific hurdle that is the creative process. But having written a book, I'm hoping I'll have a little more faith next time that will give me some sort of sustenance when I'm out in the middle of the ocean. Thank you so much for this interview. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. That was fun. Thanks for listening. Also, thanks to our editor, Janelle Pfeiffer, our intern, Tyler McCloskey. Thanks to my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff. Thanks to our sponsors, MailChimp and Pit Writers. You can always get in touch, podcast at longform.org. See you next week. Before we get going, a little bit more about Scoggin. They make great watches and jewelry inspired by the people known as the happiest people on earth, the Danish. Uh, They've got minimalist design that reflects the less is more lifestyle that makes the story so intriguing. I've been walking around with a Scoggin watch. I've been getting compliments. If you'd like to get those kind of compliments and perhaps even get those kind of compliments for a smartwatch, which is very hard, uh, go to Scoggin.com and you'll get a special discount on your first purchase when you sign up for their email list. Again, that's S-K-A-G-E-N.com. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, (laughs) but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series, Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon, taking place in Savannah, Georgia, on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.